Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hello, and welcome to Godsplaining. I'm Father Gregory Pine, and I'm joined here by Father Bonaventure Chapman. Um, we did something strange, actually, uh, at the beginning of this episode. This actually isn't the strict speaking beginning of this episode because I tried to st- I tried to start the episode. And uh, I just failed miserably. I was trying to speak, and then I and I wasn't speaking. I was saying other things that don't qualify as speech, and that's kind of amazing. You're probably thinking because you've heard many Godsplaining introductions which barely qualify as speech. So that should give you some indication as to how very awful was the lead-in to this episode. So that should portend well for all that follows. Um, so that's just a way of saying buckle up, get ready. Things are about to get wild. Father Bonaventure, how are you doing? I thought you had a stroke. <laughs> you kind of froze. I didn't know what happened. And so I was worried. And uh, we're a certain distance away from each other. I don't know if I could make it in time and also do the episode. <laughs> but I'm glad to see that you did not have a stroke and that you were fine and the episode rolls on. And uh, so uh, considering that, I'm doing great. Like yeah. things are fantastic. No one has stroked out, at least on this yeah. part of the camera. Yeah, usually like you get through the first 45 seconds of an episode and you're like, man, I've made you know, five mistakes or things that could qualify as mistakes. That's like one mistake per nine seconds, but you know, send it on down the line. But the mistake density of the first minute of our first attempt at this episode was, was so dense, or at least it felt that way to me, hmm. that I just couldn't abide it. And I figured, you know, we're going to lose a minute of footage, but it's better sometimes to lose. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just better. That's then we are yeah or maybe we just set the bar really high for this episode so uh, apologies for everyone in, in advance um, yet <laughs> I think it'll I think it'll be good it's a topic that we're both excited about talking about sea turtles so uh, it'll be good <laughs> or sea mon- we can bring it around to sea monsters um, sea charming monsters. story charming backstory during the novitiate um, we each had jobs duties responsibilities. Um, one of our first responsibilities was the, you were the head librarian of the novitiate library. I was the assistant librarian of the novitiate library and we spent an incredible amount of time throwing away books. Well, I guess that was the second semester, whatever, moving on. Um, I think I was, I was the photographer at some point, but you were the chronicler, which meant that mm. you were supposed to detail life in the novitiate to kind yeah. of give a play by play account of what had taken place. But one of the favorite homily topics of the preachers at St. Gertrude's Priory during that time of our lives was, was it sea monsters? Sea monsters, because dear listeners um, and watchers, as exciting as the novitiate sounds, or you think it might sound, uh, imagine writing every day the same. Th- like what? What? Do you- so I promised myself I wouldn't write what we ate, um, but that is probably the most exciting and changing thing that happens in novitiate. So the second thing is homilies. So I tried to remember what the homily was because I do this at night before going to bed, right before Compline. And of course, you know, at some point you probably have the same experience as this, like you don't really remember homilies that well. So when I didn't remember a homily correctly, uh, or I couldn't remember it, I would just say, uh, Father, whoever preached on sea monsters. So if there is a saint in our class, which is possible, I suppose, with Father Gregory or Father Jacob is probably pretty likely in that, um, they will go back and they'll wonder, what was the source of sanctity of this man? And they'll look at the novitiate and they'll say, a high density of sea monster homilies. Wow. <laughs> Oh, man. So gear up, listeners, because we're going to treat a species of the genus of sea monsters, which species Mm. is sea turtles. That's not true. We're actually going to talk about beauty. So we're going to get at both of these themes, but by misdirection. So beauty is a hot topic. Um, You know a thing or two about Hans Urs von Balthasar, and he made the argument that you should lead with beauty. Is it right? 
Is it wrong? What do you think about that? Well, I was yeah, I was going to say that if our listeners are probably we're all familiar with um, Dostoevsky's, you know, beauty beauty will save the world or something along those lines. Um, and Hans Hans Baltzar, who popularized now in America by uh, Bishop Robert Barron, who says follows basically Baltzar's line. Balthazar wrote a giant trilogy on the transcendentals, which people are familiar with, of the true, the good, and the beautiful. Um, and and it, those are patterned on Kant's three critiques, actually. Emmanuel Kant's three critiques. His first critique is on the true reason. second critique is on the good, which is on the pure practical reason. And the third ju- critique of judgment, which is on beauty and design. But Balthazar thought that instead of going in the, that order, he flipped it. So he said, let's start with the, with the beautiful, and he has seven volumes, the Theoesthetic, and then the Glory of the Lord, the Herrlichkeit, uh, and then five volumes on the Theodramatic, the good, and then three volumes on the Theologic, so the true. So it was, it was like an, an ascending with Kant, those three, and then a descending, the reversal, to get back, in a sense, to that. Um, and I have to say that Balthazar put a big role in my conversion to Catholicism, and there's something... There's something beautiful about the beautifulness of Catholicism. There's something attractive about it. At the same time, there was a uh, a session that William Lane Craig and Bishop Barron did together where they talked a little about evangelization. And William Lane Craig asked him, he's a famous uh, uh, Protestant apologist, you could say, or philosopher, and asked him, he said, I- I'm intrigued by the beauty of the first argument, um, but could you put some shoe leather on that? Like, how do I do it? And and that's kind of, at the end of the day, it's hard. You, It's like asking it to be in the truth. So at the same time, I think the beauty is beauty is an incredibly, incredibly evangelistic tool. Uh, and beauty is it's, this, it's profound and has a transcendental status, which we can talk about later in a way. Um, at the same time, it's also elusive. It's also hard to really pin down. And if you want to, like converting the world today... I mean, is presenting them with beautiful things, is that really going to work? Well, I think it works for some people. But I think, in general, Balthazar is on to something, that there's a way of getting people to think about Christianity and think about the truth, not directly face-on or through moralism, but through a a witness that is attractive and draws one's eye, and therefore heart, and then therefore mind. That's what I think he's up to. Yeah, and and certainly... Uh, like you said, Bishop Robert Barron has popularized this for the 21st century Catholic audience, specifically those folks who are looking to receive formation through an internet apostolate of some sort. Um, and I think that among those who are kind of doing things on the internet, this is this is a popular mode. There are some people who I think are, are kind of more like truth-centric. They're like, just give me the doctrine, just give me the goods, and uh, I'll kind of be on my way to make a synthesis of it. And then there's some people who are more kind of like goodness, they want to tell stories, um, and they want those stories to kind of draw you into a life, and they want that life to be coherent, they want that life to be humanized. And then there are, you know, there are a lot who are of the mind that you need to lead with beauty. And so um, you'll see this in kind of artistic initiatives. So I just uh, met uh, a local artist here, who's down the road, a gentleman named Andrew Dessa, who's done a handful of art, like kind of on commission uh, for local churches, local, a variety of media and a variety of settings. But he was describing a project where he's been commissioned to paint a fresco in an apse of a church, which is actually like a house chapel for a pregnancy, a crisis pregnancy center. 
Um, and he was describing to Father Patrick and me how he like wants to kind of inspire a culture of patronage, you know, to have like Catholic benefactors who want to give beauty basically to those settings, which are most beauty starved. And here he's thinking about, you know, women with unplanned pregnancies who want to choose life, but find it exceedingly difficult to do so. What is a way in which to minister to them? And this he sees is like a kind of essential feature of his apostolate. It's to make beautiful those spaces, which are often not as a way by which to draw people basically into the life of the church. So I think it's really it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's captivating. It's, um, it's alluring as a kind of method, but, but what we're doing here is the kind of truth of beauty as it were. So we're just trying to hmm. shine a light as it, as it were on the intelligibility that's at the heart of beauty. So maybe we can just start there. Just talk a little bit about what beauty is situated with the transcendental. So why don't you just take us in? How would you, how would you describe beauty? Maybe phenomenologically or as Immanuel Kant would do, or, you know, those most well, sacred sources of truth. Yeah. I mean, I mean well, Obviously, beauty's beauty's been around for a while and discussed, uh, especially in the Platonic tradition. Uh, but it's—I mean—it is a fascinating topic because it's one of those that it's hard to say exactly what's going on and has relating between the objectivity and subjectivity. So Kant calls this the antimony of 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 taste of beauty that it's both subjective and objective. And you can read the Western tradition as kind of going back and forth between is beauty just in the eye of the beholder? Everyone says that, right? Everyone hears that, but that can't be true. Nuclear bombs you know, massive carnage. I mean, right? No one thinks that's beautiful, really. So, but is it objective? Is it just purely objective? Well, that seems, it seems strange to say that beauty is some kind of property of a thing that has no relation to us. So it's how to balance that out. And the tradition has kind of gone back and forth between the objective and the subjective. And you have a Platonic tradition, of course, with this in the symposium and the moving up to the ladder of beauty and other things. And so there's an for a while there's an objectivity as the key and just mainly focuses on proportion these kind of things, and then in the about 17th century 18th century German German tradition well the English tradition with Hutchinson and Shafts, Shaftesbury and Edmund Burke, um, you get a more subjective not in the sense of like I the beholder anyone's taste de gustibus you know what have you. But in the sense that beauty is an interreaction, it's an interaction between a subject and object of a self and other. And I tend to think that's that's a beauty has to be something objective, but something subjective. It has to be some kind of relation of these two. I think traditionally, of course, that um, we talk about we talked earlier about the transcendentals, which are you could say properties of being that everything that is shares. So everything that is is true in some fashion that's related to the intellect. Everything that is, is good in some fashion. It can be desirable under some aspect. And everything is, is beautiful, but it's hard to say that again, as we said, it has to ride on something, you know, so it rides generally on the good. But I think that's the intersubjectivity. So I think beauty, right off the bat, is a weird middle ground. Yeah, so I want to pick up on this idea of how beauty is related to truth and goodness, because I think that's a really helpful way of getting at the intelligible core. So truth, you said, is relation to an intellect. So when we're talking about a relationship of truth, we're saying that my mind adequately reflects what is out there in reality. So in a certain sense, it's like it goes from reality to the mind, right? That's the kind of general trajectory, the general movement of truth. With respect to good, St. Thomas observes, we call those things good, which you know people desire. Right. So there's a kind of movement from the subject, from the person towards reality. In this case, you go out towards that thing, which you cognize, which you recognize, and you're seeking in it 
some form of perfection, some form of completion, some form of whatever, something, basically something that fits with your nature. And I think that you see both dimensions in beauty. So St. Thomas is the definition that he gives for beauty. I mean, it's not so much a definition as it is a kind of observation. He says, we call those things beautiful, which when seen, please. So it's kind of like a, you know, you, you describe an experience. There are certain things that when seen, they please. And those things are the things that we call beautiful. And what he does is he identifies three properties, as it were, of a beautiful thing. So he says a word that you mentioned, you know, proportion, uh, and then integrity, and then splendor. So proportion, it's, it, you can think about it as a kind of symmetry, a kind of balance. Things are as they ought to be. So you can see there, um, yeah, a kind of figure, a kind of form, a kind of shape, which is pleasing. So you think about like a very beautiful tree during autumn, like, like right in the middle of the turn, and you've got shades of orange and red uh, tending to brown, but it's in just such a way that it looks as if it were done by a brushstroke, right? So there's a, kind of, there's a kind of balance to it. And then he says integrity, everything that's proper to that thing is there, it's present, right? So it lacks nothing of what it ought to have. So you go back to your tree, you can think about how beautiful a kind of full leafy tree is by comparison to a tree that's been recently struck by lightning and a big limb has fallen off. It just looks scarred. It looks disintegrated. It looks, you know, broken. And then the third and final thing is what he calls splendor, right? Or clarity. And this is this idea that the form of the thing actually has a kind of radiance. And the way that I would describe it is it's like the thing is from an intelligence and for an intelligence. It's as if the thing is addressed to you. So oftentimes, and here you can you know, kind of bring it back to Burke, whom you mentioned, this experience of the sublime, it's not so much like dread or terror or, or awe in a kind of animalistic sense, but it's like a rational recognition of something that is beyond or something that beckons from beyond. So I think a lot of people have had the experience of looking at a very beautiful site, whether it's the Grand Canyon or the Hudson River Valley, and just being kind of astonished by it. But if you take it down to its material components, it's like, you know, you got rock, you got water, you got this, that, and the other thing. It's like, whatever. You got all those things in your backyard, but it's the arrangement of them. You know, okay, sure, plate tectonics and whatever. There's some stone that is more easily etched by water than is, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we can, we can again, reduce it. But still, there's something about it that seems like it's for you. And that's not to like make an intelligence design type of argument. It's just simply to say like, this thing is given and you are made to receive it. And I think that people experience that powerfully. And Sometimes we lack the language we're about to describe it. So maybe that's just using St. Thomas's criteria, trying to relate the true and the good, and then bring it home to these three properties of beauty. I don't know. Does that, does that hold up? Do you feel like that's overly neat? How much time do we have? Um, so I, <laughs> I'll say... Yeah, I, think yeah. it's better, I think it's better just to go for it. Just say honestly. I mean, if it's yeah. too neat, it's too no, neat. No, I think. Well, I, I mean, I, I. So this that so that that's a traditional, the objective kind of criteria and such. So like these properties of things, right? The integrity and the proportion and the the clarity or splendor. Um, and I think interesting. I mean, in a sense, aesthetics as a discipline takes off really in the 1800s. Um, and one of the things they kind of fight back on, or at least if you read the if you read Shaftesbury and you read Burke and you read Kant and you read um, Schiller and you read Hegel on this, for instance. Um, what they're pushing back a little bit on is that I can find a lot of beautiful things that don't have those properties. Sure. So it can't beauty can't be those pro So I can have a tr tragic beauty, uh, dark colors, things that are imperfect, uh, lack of proportion, and then giving examples of things where it's like I can actually have the right proportions, but it's not beautiful. I can have the right proportions, the right splendor, and a unity, and it's not beautiful. So the objective, so the objective criteria um, have to have. They may be touch points. 
Um, but I think their critique of it, and I'm, I'm not again given entirely to it, but I think there's something to the that it's that it can't be an entirely objective criteria. It's not instant the instantiation of these particular properties, because we can give beautiful things, extremely beautiful things, that don't meet the criteria at all, and the definition or the properties of something has to have those things. Otherwise, the properties aren't actual actual properties of what you're describing. So, but I but they are there is something about them. I think they're good touch points, and I think they're they're right. But Thomas has actually. Um, do we need a break now, or do I? Can I go into Thomas's part where he's go right on this? It. I think. So it is interesting. He says, he says, beauty is about riding on pleasure. We talked about how in the 20th century there's this idea of transcendentals like make beauty its own. Beauty is as good as the true and the good. You know, give it a place at the table. We love beauty, this sort of thing. And I think Thomas have generally resisted that um, because it seems to follow upon pleasure and the good. And Thomas' definition, and you might say, but you might say, well, why do we need beauty at all? The good is about pleasure. But if you listen to his definitions, it's interesting. It's it's. The, what is pleasurable when seen. And that's not just like, oh, colors, the splendor issue, but actually it's the distance. I think beauty, and this is where actually Kant and the, the subjective tradition, you could say, picks up and says the pleasure in beauty is not like the pleasure in the good, and not just because it's like through a, a sight organ but or through a taste organ, the difference is there per se, but because the pleasure of beauty is a disinterested pleasure. It's a pleasure from a distance from a separation. The pleasure of the good is the is the desire to become that, to become one with it. Whereas the pleasure with beauty, things that are beautiful cause pleasure and remain at a distance. Things that are true and cause pleasure are things taken into us. Things that are good and cause pleasure are things that we turn into in a sense. We move out to them in this way. But the beauty, and I think Thomas's his definition is, is good on that, is it has that it's a pleasure at a distance. And that does describe a particular interrelationship, I think, between beauty and pleasure that gives it a disinterested quality. Not a disinterested sense of who cares, but the sense that it's beautiful for its own sake. It, just doesn't, need, it doesn't have to be useful. It doesn't have to be true. It could be fictional. It has this kind of quality to it that the distance presents. So that's, I think that's right. Okay. You, you made an interesting opening salvo. You're like, do we need to go to a break or can I go for this? And the answer is always, we never need to go to a break because breaks are made up. But in the spirit of making up breaks at randomly appointed times, we're going to go to a break. So we'll catch you on the other side of it. You are listening to Godsplaining. Visit us at godsplaining.org to listen to our episodes, shop our store, and donate to our podcast. All gifts go to improving the podcast and bringing the gospel to more listeners. Thanks for your support. All right, folks. Thanks for sticking with this here episode of God's Planning. We're talking about beauty. And so far, we've just kind of done the spade work of defining beauty a little bit or situating beauty a little bit, talking about the subjective pole, the objective pole of beauty, and trying to find a way by which to describe our experience so as to make sense of our experience. I think here, maybe we can just kind of drill down on the experience itself, drill down into the experience itself, and maybe think a little bit about how one, you know, incorporates beauty into his or her life or what place beauty could or might occupy in one's life uh, in a way that's humanizing, in a way that's actually conducive to growth in the life of faith. Hmm. So, all right, Father Bonavich, you're a man who reads poetry, you're a man who reads fiction, you're a man who likes the visual arts, you care about film. Um, 
I remember you describing at one point we were giving a tour to the new novices who were coming into St. Gertrude's. And I think you said something to the effect of like, I force myself to read literature most nights, mm. which, you know, betray the lack of evident delight in reading literature, but a kind of commitment to it as a thing. So commitment to beauty, is it, is it something that we ought to will? Is this, uh, is this part of human flourishing? Yes. Um, you should go to galleries. <laughs> You should have art in your house you should, or your room or whatever it is. It could be, I mean, this is, there's a, you know, not Thomas Kincaid. Um, uh, so, but w we're going to discuss what real art is later. We'll have a real artist on for guest explaining at some point in the, in the near future. Um, but I think, yes, you need, you need to have, there are, we need to be cultivated, I think. And I mean, we think, oh, we graduate from, we, we get confirmed. So then church is done. And then we graduate from like high school or college and then like education is done. But anyone who knows and wants to live as a human being and not just like an animal um, knows that like that's just the beginning. You'd be given the tools by confirmation to actually worship correctly and become a Catholic fully. And it, college, education, whatever, then that just gives you the point of now being able to educate yourself for life. And in the same way, we need to educate ourselves in knowledge and, and goodness. Uh, we don't ever stop learning about how to be better people, virtu more virtuous people and all that. And I think we need to be people who are also affected by the by the beautiful and drawn out because beauty has a natural contemplative aspect to it. And things like that are hard. Can't, anyone who's tried to do contemplative prayer has tried to do prayer knows that it's difficult. It's an act of the will in many cases to get there. And it's the same way I think with beauty is that you, it has to be an act of the will that then you learn to love and appreciate. But it is something that is not entirely obvious right away because anyone who's been to an art gallery with small children notice that they just don't see anything there you know um it takes time I, I for instance or i'll make a confession here landscapes do nothing for me but that doesn't mean landscapes are bad it actually means that i'm bad right because when you go to see this is very important when you go to an art gallery or so you see good art um it's doing the judging like it judges you it's like when you read a great book you know, a fantastic piece of literature. You were on judgment. It's dangerous practice to read good literature and read good things because you might not measure up to them. And the same thing with good art is like you are on trial. And if you realize I just don't get this here, then th don't tell anyone because it's broadcasting your inadequacies. So it's a project you have to you have you have to involve yourself in. And I yeah, landscape paintings and poetry. Actually, I have art really time with poetry. My I'm just not that cultivated yet. But I'm working on it. <laughs> so one of the things that I like about, um, you know, beautiful, the arts of the beautiful, is that they are very human. What do I mean by that? I mean that they're rational, right? But they're embodied as well. So they're, they evince a kind of embodied rationality. And St. Thomas, you know, so we said that St. Thomas described those things as beautiful, which when seen, please. And he says that we, we register them in two particular sense powers, right? So sight and hearing. And he says that those particular sense powers are most intellectual. Um, so there's the sense that the beauty kind of happens at the meeting of sense and intellect, right? Because so sight and hearing, they're, they're kind of, in, they have a kind of intuitive character to them. They, 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 we talk about seeing a thing with your eye and seeing a thing with your intellect, as it were, um, a kind of beholding, a kind of vision. And so beauty appeals to us in this, in this really concrete way as, as embodied creatures. And I think that, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day who was going through a difficult breakup and this friend was asking for advice as how to, yeah, how to kind of get back to living and how to like taste food again. 
And I was like, you got to get out of your head and into your body. And I think that a lot of us are tempted to live kind of angelistically. We tend to, mm -hmm. we tend to drift from our bodies. I mean, in my own particular case, I've just been doing a lot of spade work on this chapter of my dissertation that I finished today. Let's go. Um, but I was just reading Christology and then just sitting in front of my computer for many hours a day and just kind of, but as a result of which certain things that I would ordinarily do, um, yeah, that just kind of went by the wayside. So the only books that I read otherwise would be like audiobooks that I listened to on the car on I-95. Um, Whereas ordinarily I would have, you know, I'd have dedicated some time to that, I think. So there's, there's a temptation, especially like when you're, when you're digging a hole, you know, when you're doing a lot of spade work to just treat yourself like a thought machine. Um, but you're not, you know, you're an embodied, you're an embodied thinker, right? You're a human being and beauty has a way of kind of drawing you into your humanity, um, a way of appealing yeah. to you in your humanity. Well, in a sense, and I mean, uh, so a certain German philosopher in the 18th century um, talked about it in this way, in this, the mid between point which you're talking about here is that aesthetics is the sensibilities it's the sensualities and beauty is found after the senses of the initial kind of sense data you could say taken in because that's what animals do that too animals receive things from the outside and they respond to them right and then angels and super rational creatures like god you know we have just concepts this sort of thing but beauty is for this philosopher this middle point where it's it's after the sense things sense data has come in but before it has been conceptualized beauty is the play he calls it the free play of the imagination and the understanding so instead of with when rationalization is conceptualizing sense material you know we've talked about phantasms in the Thomistic tradition but in a sense beauty is the is the the in between stage where you haven't yet grasped the concept in a definite way that you could then share with each other, but you are playing. It's not just sense data. The imagination and the understanding are playing. You're preparing. It's moving towards a concept, but it has this play about it. So it is both, in a sense, it's amphibious. It's both in the senses. It's embodied. It has, it's still stuck. The imagination is that kind of physical, the phantasm we talk about, fantasy, um, has the senses to it. But yet the understanding is already working with it. They're, they're harmonizing back and forth. They're trying to figure each other out. It's like a meeting between two people. It's like a first date, basically, before a concept, the sense data comes in. And animals don't do that. They don't have the under, they don't have, you know, Verstand or Vernuft. So they don't, they're not going to get to concepts. What we do, so it's kind of like us bringing the senses into humanity. And so it's a beautiful, the, the beauty is a place is distinctly human. Angels don't have the sense faculties in that way. Um, but it, so beauty is something that we as humans distinctly have. It's a rationalization in a way of the aesthetic sphere. And that's, so as you say, when you talk about being a human and a body and experience, and you go and see different things music wise or painting wise or something, um, it's really getting in touch with the very best parts of your humanity. And I think that's a profound, profound insight and experience that phenomenologically we experience. We, we as humans know beauty um, and it feels extremely natural and yet not rational in the same way. It's not irrational, but it's not rational. It's something, it's something between, but it's very human. All right. As we kind of uh, wrap the episode up, as we think about takeaways, um, we force ourselves to be practical on account of the fact that it doesn't come naturally. Um, and we're, you know, typically accustomed to traffic and wildly impractical things that sound nice. Um, but for somebody who's listening to this and maybe has gotten used to a workaday world 
and they've gotten used to their kind of mundane habits, which aren't especially beautiful and are kind of draining. And they just feel the accumulated fatigue just building up, you know, behind their tired faces and in their weary limbs. And they feel like, yeah, I mean, that might be beautiful for somebody else, but yeah, somebody's just got to, someone's got to dig the hole. Someone's got to do the spade work. And there's just a lot of spade work ahead of me. What would you say to that type of person who maybe has despaired a bit of experiencing or encountering beauty in his or her life? Desktop backgrounds. <laughs> I mean, you know, before the tw- before the 20th century or the 21st century, you had to go to places to find beauty or something. Now, you you might you might be a nature person, so if you like going nature things, you know, take time to do that, and or just look out, pay attention, sort of thing. But I think of the human beauty in terms of art and in in in, in these these terms, um, colors and. Uh, Humans are great. We not only does beauty affect us, but we actually create beauty in this way. Nature creates beauty; it's fine. But uh, human beauty is is really spectacular as well. And that's just a matter of of surrounding yourself with that. And I mean, I'd say it does sound cliche, but like your desktop and your iPhone, you know, unless you got it in a black and white setting, uh, your iPhone background or something, like have a picture there, a beautiful a painting, something you like. Look, it only takes a second to type in great art, Google, great art. <laughs> And you'll just see a bunch of stuff and just see who you like. I mean, if you want to send, you know, there might be, we could have a recommended art list or something, but there's plenty of, whatever strikes you as beautiful and draws you to contemplate for a moment, that disinterested pleasure, like, wow, that's really fascinating. And it could be anything. It could be anything. But like, but so you can put that in your, in your life. So those little steps, nothing like super, you know, get a pass to the Met or go to your local art gallery. Although if you live in any, anywhere, there's some great art galleries and a lot of them are free. So if you have a local Americana art gallery, uh, check it out the summer at some point now that COVID's over and you might have some time and it's really hot. You might be on fire to get back to an early discussion that we started in Inclusio, which may not have been a part of this episode. Um, <laughs> uh, go inside. It's probably air conditioned and there's some really cool stuff in there and you will not believe me. You'll, you will not be disappointed. So just give it a try. And I think your, your humanity will be helped by it and you, you'll know that. Um, maybe my one complimentary takeaway point would be that the most beautiful thing in creation in, in material creation is the human form. Right. And I think that, um, oftentimes we think about beauty as something apart from our ordinary lives, but I think that beauty is present in our ordinary lives and it just, it's a matter of addressing it. It's a matter of attending to it. It's a matter of uncovering it. Um, and here, you know, like I think of some examples of literature, which are very ugly, um, like the Grapes of Wrath strikes me as a very ugly thing. But I mean, on the road from Oklahoma to California, you pass a lot of beautiful things. And you also see, even though I think that book is basically a secular humanist manifesto, you see a lot of beautiful exchanges. Mind you, there's tons of tragedy. And you also see wickedness to a kind of bewildering extent. But you also see human beings engaged in kind of beautiful exchanges. Now, aesthetic beauty and moral beauty, those are different categories. But just simply to say that like beauty is something that's created and the response to a created thing is a kind of contemplation. And what contemplation is, is I mean, it's a kind of beholding, right? So it's, um, yeah, what do you say? It's just, it's to see the world transfigured, to see the world addressed to you, to see the world as it were, as a gift. And I think that um, these are just the kind of fundamental habits of mind and heart which also inform prayer, which inform worship, which inform play, which inform leisure of all kinds of sorts. So I think that um, 
that that kind of basic recognition that it's it's all been given and it's a matter of my receiving it is helpful to acknowledge the beauty that's already present rather than looking elsewhere for a beauty which might be fugitive or evasive so and i think and i think it's helpful as you say for contemplation in that the act of contemplation is one where you stand back and you behold the creator and his goodness to you and and the redeemer and truth we try to assimilate and take control of and you don't do that with god and goodness we try to like work ourselves up to but you don't do that with god but beauty is something that you just it appears it presents itself you didn't it's just there and so it's a, as you say a gift so it's a, like a natural preparation for the supernatural contemplation that you're you're going for boom there you go all right folks well thanks so much uh for listening uh we appreciate your efforts at liking sharing uh, and saying to it that the podcast is listened to by others who stand to benefit from it. Um, a special word of thanks to those who support us on Patreon. We're very grateful. Uh, it affords us the opportunity to pay Katie Parker to edit audio and video and post and do social media stuff, none of which I understand or even see because I'm not on any of those platforms. Uh, but we're certainly grateful because it just makes it more widely available, more visible so that other people can benefit therefrom. Um, so yeah, please pray for the retreat that we have upcoming, not this weekend, but next weekend for those of you who are listening in real time. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the other thing is that we have this trip next summer to walk, um, the last 170 ish miles of the Camino right now. It's father Jacob Bertrand and I are going to be kind of chaplaining it. So now we're opening up applications for those who are fit, those who are desirous, those who are motivated to do so. And then we'll sort through some applications and then see if we can get a good squad together for that. Uh, so also check that out on godsplaining.org. I think that's the name of our website. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, did I forget anything? Beats me. Nice. If I did, we'll never know. All right, so our prayers are for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on Godsplaining. Thanks for listening to Godsplaining, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app and visit us at godsplaining.org.